In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Tuesday. It's such a beautiful day. And I let me just say this. Everybody, buckle up for a mind-bending journey as we welcome the one and only Dr. David Solomon, a professor whose creativity flows like a river of ideas, carving new channels in the world of art and imagination, whose brilliance casts a radiant glow on the path of artistic exploration, a virtuoso of originality, painting vivid landscapes, uh, that captivate the hearts of all of those who encounter him. Dr. David Sullivan, I'm so thankful you're here today. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on, on, on who you are and where you're from. Well, George, first, I got to correct you. It's Wednesday, not Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> but second, uh, will you uh, give my eulogy at, at my funeral, please? Because uh, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, yes, I am a professor of uh, medieval literature, religion, culture have been for uh, over three decades. Uh, I'm currently the um, Director of Research and Creative Activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, where my office facilitates undergraduate research and creative opportunities for students across the institution. And I continue to teach in our honors program and our, media, our uh, museum studies program and um, written a bunch of books. My most recent book is on the seven deadly sins and I started in graduate school, really on the track for my dissertation, interested in English mysticism. So I think that's where we're going. Yeah, we have started this new series called the Codex Chronicles. And I find the world of manuscripts and mysticism and religion and, and spirituality so fascinating. And I'm so thankful to get to talk to you because you speak all these different languages and you can read the text in their original format. And you're just a, it's, it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you. And I believe that my audience and people are out there are thirsty for this kind of information. And I, I really believe there's an audience that is loving it. I'm getting a lot of cool emails. So thank you for being here today. We're going to talk about a manuscript today. Maybe you can, the, the yeah. cloud of the unknowing. What, what is this? Yeah. So the cloud of unknowing is, um, 
probably one of the most famous uh, mystical works that continues to be very popular today. I, I imagine that you can probably walk into just about any bookstore and go to their religion section, and they'll probably have a copy of one of the editions on the shelf. Um, we don't know who the author is. Um, was written in the latter half of the 14th century. So this is the the height of um, really of English mysticism, 14th century English mysticism. There's a, a flurry of activity. And I think in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about some of the, the different works and authors. Um, and The Cloud of Unknowing is, is one of those. Originally written in Middle English. Um, so a little bit unusual in that. We're starting to see by the time we get to the 14th century in England, these works being written more in the vernacular and not being written just in Latin. So they are intended, it would seem, for a broader audience. Um, there are 17 known manuscripts of this work. So it was, uh, it, it, it survives. Um, two of the best known are in the British Library and Cambridge University Library. Um, as I say, we don't know who the author is. He's probably a priest. Um, he's certainly a spiritual director because that's um, how he is addressing the work as someone who is overseeing the um, the spiritual direction of an individual. Um, he clearly knows his um, his Thomas Aquinas. Um, he knows the Greeks. Um, it wasn't as popular a work at the time as some of the other ones that we're going to discuss in the coming weeks because it was addressed to solitaries who were really on advanced levels of the mystical journey. And so that wasn't, you know, Joe Schmo walking on the street. These are people who are seriously involved in engaging in this kind of work and this kind of life. And probably the, the best um, way that we can kind of set up what this is all about is just to kind of give a, a, a really brief paradigm of what that mystical journey is. Right. And so this is um, there's a, a very famous work called Mysticism written by Evelyn Underhill, Evelyn Underhill, um, English scholar, um, herself, a, um, a, a spiritual individual. And this work, which she published in 1911, in many ways became the, the standard text. And really, if you're going to study mysticism um, from an academic perspective, um, this is, I think, the first place that you really have to go. And in the work, she very clearly outlines that there are essentially three stages in the mystical journey. The first one she calls illumination. So it's, as the name sort of indicates, the light bulb comes on, right? Ah, this is this is what this is. This is, uh, you know, available to me. This is possible. And then the next stage is more active. It's purgation. You have to purge the self of the things that are getting in the way, for lack of another way of putting it. And that it brings you then to the third level, which is the ultimate um, goal here, which is the unitive union, union with the divine. Um, and you know what that looks like and what that means, obviously, up for um, lots of lots of discussion. Um, but the cloud of unknowing fits in in a, in a kind of an odd spot in the history of mystical literature because it is one of the um, earliest pieces in English that really advocates for what's called negative theology. Mm. 
Um, so the, the author is interested in, in, in negative theology, what is called in the literature apophatic theology, which is basically looking at um, God and the divine through negation rather than affirmation. The approach here is that the divine is ineffable. We can't explain it. We don't know what it is. Any words are going to fail us because it's beyond human language. And so as a result, the approach is sort of take a complete 180 and say, well, let's talk about what it isn't. Um, and that's really what negative, negative theology is about. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an important approach. Um, it's an important approach. So that was, that was a lot by way of introduction. I'm sorry about that. Not at all. It's very informative. And I think it's imperative that we lay a foundation for people so they can begin to understand it. And I, it's in some ways, it reminds me of Alfred North Whitehead, where he talks about mysticism, clarification, action. I've never thought about putting yeah. a negative theology on there, but yeah, it's it's an interesting way. And it, it seems that just the title alone, the cloud of the unknowing, yeah, it's kind of foreshadowing how they're going to figure it out a little bit, right? It's yeah, and and, and I mean, you know, surprisingly, you know, for, from the description that I just gave, it sounds like, oh my gosh, this must be so complicated. It's actually 75 very short chapters. The chapters, chapters, quote unquote, are a few paragraphs. Um, it's very readable, um, but it is very, very complex. And, uh, you know, I went back and, and pulled my copy off the shelf in, in, in advance of our discussion. And it was interesting because I haven't, I, ha I have to say, I haven't revisited this text personally in many, many years. And just to go through and see what I underlined and the notes that I made myself is always kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I think the author really sets up everything in the fourth chapter when he really talks about what that cloud is. Um, and if you if you don't mind, I'm just going to read the paragraph. Please. Um, so he refers to this as being a darkness, right? Everyone talks about the divine as being light. And he says, actually, it's darkness. But he says, and I quote, do not think that because I call it a darkness or a cloud, it's the sort of cloud you see in the sky or the kind of darkness you know at home when the light's out. That kind of darkness or cloud you can picture in your mind's eye in the height of summer, just as in the depth of winter's night, you can picture a clear and shining light. I do not mean this at all. By darkness, I mean a lack of knowing. Just as anything that you do not know or may have forgotten may be said to be dark to you, for you cannot see it with your inward eye. For this reason, it's called a cloud, not of the sky, of course, but of unknowing, a cloud of unknowing between you and your God. Um, and I just think that's, you know, that's really, it, 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 it's counterintuitive to what we do as human beings because we're so intellectual. And certainly there is a tremendous um, pathway in the mystical literature for the intellect and the role of the intellect. But almost all of the, the writers in the Middle Ages um, will all say that the intellect is only going to get you so far. At some point, you got to let go. Um, you know, and, and, and America picked up on this, right? I mean, I, I always talk about this with my students when we do a broad discussion of spirituality. If you get a dollar bill out, if anybody still carries dollar bills, um, and you look at the seal on the back, the pyramid with the eye of God at the top, um, there's a lot of symbolism in that seal. And But one of the things is that 
intelligence can only get you so far. Um, there are 21 stages there, which are, the 21 is the age of reason. And then there's a gap between the top of the pyramid and the eye of God, because reason is not going to get you there, right? That's the leap of faith. And in many ways, that's what the author here is talking about. You're going to get to a certain point, and then you're going to get to this darkness, this cloud of unknowing, which for us as human beings, you know, especially today in our ultra, you know, rational world, we want to know and want to understand everything. And the author is saying, you're not going to understand this. you got to give yourself over to it. It's mind-blowing to me because it, it it seems to me, and, and you know, as someone who's, who's not a scholar in this area, you can really begin to see that break, whether it's that leap of faith. But what, what, the way you're explaining it, and when I've, I hear about some of the medieval mystics, it seems that... There was a break between people actually having real mystical experiences and then trying to put them down versus an interpretation of one. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, you know, we got to stop right there and say real mystical experience. What does that mean? (laughs) Right. Um, You know, if it, if it's real to you, I mean, because a mystical experience is something which is so incredibly personal, right. It's really, you really can't say to somebody, Oh, well, you didn't have that experience. Right. It, it, it's it's the thing we run into when people are saying, you know, well, I, I'm really depressed. And they're saying, oh, don't feel that way. It's like, right. well, that doesn't help. You don't know what that's like. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is a there's an interesting um, change that occurs, to okay. be sure. I mean, in a lot of the earlier theologians in, in Augustine and Aquinas and, and Bernard of Clairvaux and a lot of the earlier Christian theologians, and that's where I'm staying at the moment is with Christianity, um, although it's not exclusively there, but um, th- those guys all th- did have what they would claim to be mystical experiences as part of their biographies. Um, it was a gateway for them to higher intellect, whereas for a lot of these mystics that we're talking about, such as the, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, it isn't really a gateway to higher intellect. It's a gateway to love of the divine exclusively. Mm. So whereas somebody like Aquinas is so intellectual, and, and I mean, you know, his work is just incredible. Um, it's, it's informed by his experience of the divine. Sometimes a mystic will stop there. And so we'll see that with a couple of the writers that we're going to look at where you're right. I mean, they are interested in relaying the experience more than interpreting what it means. And for others, I mean, you know, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing does not claim to be, quote unquote, a mystic. Um, I don't know that anybody can claim to be a mystic. I mean, what does that mean? You know, it, you can't exactly look up the the job description in the occupational handbook. You know, and I, I was joke with students and I say, you know, try putting that down on your IRS tax return under profession um, and good luck. Um, you know, you, it's, it, you really can't. It doesn't work that way. Um, it doesn't work that way. And And by the same token, and I think the author of our text today also would argue this. You can't set out to say, I want to, that to happen. I want to have a mystical experience because as just about every mystical writer will tell you, including 
folks like Evelyn Underhill and and the and the scholars, um, these experiences come uninvited. That doesn't mean that one can't prepare oneself for it. And that's what many of these these handbooks, and really that's what the cloud of unknowing is, are teaching you to do, to prepare your yourself, body and soul, right? Intellect as well, for this experience. And if it happens, fantastic, congratulations. But I mean, they're all clear on the fact that this isn't going to happen to everybody. Um, in fact, I mean the, the cloud author says, you know, this isn't for everybody because I don't even want everybody to read this text, right? I mean, it isn't it in, in the prologue, I think he talks about, you know, he doesn't want sort of average folks reading the text because this isn't for them. Um, what does he say here? There's a great sentence. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, where he, he talks about the fact that um, he doesn't expect that. Yeah, he says, I, I do not mind at all if the loud and this is this is the the wonderful translation by Clifton Walters, and there are lots of translations of the cloud, obviously. But uh, he says, I do not mind at all if the loudmouthed or flatterers or the mock modest or fault finders, gossips, tittle tattlers, tale bearers, or any sort of grumbler never see this book. I've never meant to write for them, so they can keep out of it. And so can all those learned men and unlearned too who are merely curious, right? That's not what he's looking for. And, and so it really becomes clear that his audience, he's got an audience in mind. It's people who are serious about this, who are serious about leading this kind of a life. And, you know, he really sets up the, the, the contrast right from the get-go between an active life and a contemplative life. It's mind-blowing to me just to, just to, sit and listen to something like that that was written so long ago and on some level have it be so heartwarming and, and beautiful yeah. and, and explanatory in so many different ways today. You know, I'm curious if, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could, you said that you had revisited this book for the first time in a long yeah. time. I'm curious if you could maybe, maybe you could check out some of the parts that you underlined yeah. when you were there and then talk about them today and how you feel about sure, them. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, I found it interesting as I was as I was looking through it that, um, you know, when you look at things, when you go back and look at a text that you've not worked with in a while, it's always kind of interesting because you pick up new things and you're looking at it through a new lens, Right. I know a lot more now than I did when I read this text originally, which was probably, oh, probably close to 30 years ago um, <laughs> when I was working on my doctoral dissertation. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, that, I, that I underlined and that I noted was this interesting bit that he has, and it's in chapter 72, 71. Um, where he's talking about Moses. Um, now, there's a lot about Moses in mystical literature, about Moses um, and, 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 you know, and Gregory of Nyssa, who wrote A Life of Moses, is often credited as being a big influence on the writer of The Cloud of Unknowing. And in The Life of Moses and in Philo of Alexandria's Life of Moses, which is just a brilliantly written work, um, both of them talk about Moses as kind of a type, as a prototype, right? He's an exemplar of the mystic for them. 
And, um, you know, he, I, I love the, the discussions about him because in this chapter in the cloud, he says, before Moses could see the ark and learn how it was to be made, he had to climb with long and toilsome effort to the top of the mountain and remain there and work in a cloud for six days and wait till on the seventh day, our Lord condescended to show him the way in which the ark should be made. Moses' long and strenuous efforts and his delayed vision symbolize those who cannot reach the full height of this spiritual work without such preliminary effort and toil. And all of the writers talk about Moses preparing to go up the mountain. We're talking about him going up to the up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, right, and get the instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant. And 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 there's a lot in the literature about the preparation that he had to go through before he went up the mountain in order to do this. And that is often looked at as being a model for the mystical journey. Um, but again, he follows this, the cloud author does, by telling us this isn't going to happen to everybody. He says Moses could only see, in quotes, on rare occasions. And then after much hard work, right? I mean, this doesn't, it, it, this is hard work. This is hard work. And, you know, we talk all the time about uh, in, in, in the spiritual and spiritual realms. We talk about it in psychology about, you know, you've you got to do the work. Right. Right. And, and the work is hard work. Um, and it is probably harder to do today than it ever has been before because of, you know, the myriad distractions that we have and all the other noise. Um, but I love that 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 image. And it's mostly because as a, as a child, I. I was really engaged with the story of Moses. I I, I love the Ten Commandments, uh, which actually I talk about that in the in the Seven Deadly Sins book in the in the introduction. Um, I grew up in that film, and so Moses was a was a model for me as well. I didn't even really know why, and then when I would read about all of these writers talking about him as a model for the mystical or spiritual life, and you think about what he has to go through in order to get to that point. And of course, ultimately, if you want to look at the, 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 the Exodus story, in some ways he fails um, because he doesn't, I mean, he achieves some kind of union, momentary union with the divine at the burning bush. But really for him, his goal is to get to the promised land. And the promised land for him is is a, is a euphemism for that unity with the divine, and and he's denied that. Um, he he has to stand on the other side of the river and watch as they as they leave, and and go with uh, with Joshua across the river. It's um it's it's an incredible story. It is an incredible story, and it, like it just it really colors in the idea of faith. And when you say doing the hard work, like knowing that it's almost unachievable, but doing it anyway, like that's so powerful yeah, to think about. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's not going to work, but you know, right. you, you have to do it. And there's just, right. that, that's it. Because the fact that you don't know it isn't going to work is also a sign of your humility. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, if you go into it with that arrogant feeling that you, oh, I know how to do this. I got this, you know, I, I really, if we do that, if we do anything like that. Right. Oftentimes it blows up in our face. And so, you know, the, the going into any any endeavor 
with a sense of humility is probably a, a good thing, which, you know, is what's lacking in so many folks, um, you know, and I, I thinking about the folks who often show up in the news, right? I mean, our, our leaders, right, <laughs> seem to have, you know, no sense of, of real humility. And uh, that often backfires on them. You, when I, and when I think about what we've just spoken about or, what, or some parts that you have read right there, it seems to me that there is something really courageous in sitting with uncertainty. And like that is like that to me seems like humility in a way, like the fact that we seem to find ourselves so certain all the time or these people that know we're, we're going to do this and this. Like, yeah, like there's something so beautiful in someone who has the courage to sit with uncertainty. But it is tough. Oh, it's, it's almost you know, it's it's so very scary. difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's frightening. And and, you know, it just is counterintuitive to who we are because we're taught to use our our rational selves in order to figure things out. Um, you know, we, we just got I, I think I mentioned two new kittens and to watch them as they kind of figure things out it's kind of it's it's interesting it is um you know they are not willing to to sit with uncertainty um <laughs> they will try just about anything that's possible and fail and then you know the odd thing of course is that they don't necessarily always learn from that where we would we would hope um that you know okay that's that's not the way to do this or the way to go um but i i think that that's right it, it that you know, and, and that uncertainty is part of, of what I do for a living as, a, yeah. as being an education, right? I mean, it, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm teaching my course this fall coming up on the Bible as literature. And um, I always have students who come in the first day, the height of arrogance. Oh, I know the Bible, <laughs> you know, and, to which my, my response is, then why, why, why are you taking the class? Right. You know, why are you here? What you already you, you say you already know this. You're coming in already so self-assured. What can I teach you? And um, some of those folks will drop the class um, and some will stay in it. And will kind of push back. And it's really interesting because yeah. to see over the first few weeks of the course, usually when they start realizing that what they were so certain about. Maybe that's not really what they thought it was um you know and it often i often encounter because they've been you know a certain story or certain certain uh, section has been explained to them in some way in in their the religious school or their, by their parents and you know and i'm approaching this not from a devotional perspective but from an, an academic perspective and i'll explain what the interpretation of this is and what it means and they will fight me on it and fight me on it. My, one of my favorites is, and I think we've talked about this before, you know, we talk about the, the, the Immaculate Conception mm. and, you know, students think it's the, it's the conception of Jesus. And I say, no, it's the conception of Mary by Anne, her mother. And, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. <laughs> that, that just tell me I'm dead wrong. I'm absolutely wrong. And I will also, you know, I go ask your priest on Sunday and they go and they come back and they say, Oh, yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> um, and I think that that learning that humility, that ability to be humble in your education, really in your personal growth in general is what we're talking about. Right. 
is is so significant. Um, you know, I when I had a bookstore in the 1980s, and I remember um, I had a customer call up once for a particular book um, because it was on a high school reading list when mm -hmm. they still read in high schools, and <laughs> um, and and they need the I think it was the mother needed a copy of the book because the kid was on the kids' reading list for the summer, and. Um, the phone call was taken by the woman who was running the cash register and she called to me and, and asked me if we had the book. And I arrogantly corrected her pronunciation of the author's last name because I thought I knew better. And I realized not soon after that, that I was wrong mm. and I felt foolish and I felt, I mean, incredibly humbled I mean, this this is an experience that I had that probably was, oh my gosh, close to 50 years ago. And I'm still talking about it now. And the, the book was Albert Camus, The Stranger. Mm -hmm. She said, do we have a copy of that? And I said, Camus? I said, what do you mean, Camus? Because <laughs> I, I, I did not know it was pronounced Camus. I didn't know he was French. Um, I don't think I'd ever read the book at that point. Um, and so, you know, the fact that there's always room for us to learn is, is a hard thing to, to process. I think it's part of our, our, our growth, right. Is understanding as Socrates says, you know, the one thing I know is I don't know anything. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I think that's a good way to go into things. Um, well, yeah, it, I mean, the cloud of unknowing, if you look at it as a metaphor, it, possibly it's maybe we should all have a cloud of unknowing around us. And that's the humility. You know, it's the, I had written down the, the exploration of the concept of divine love, contemplation, and the pursuit of God through a state of unknowing. And it seems like that's, there's so much in there when we, when you talk about the cloud of unknowing, and then you can talk about how, whether it's, you know, having humility about a book coming in or teaching a class like it's i guess it gets back to the idea of the the negative theology that you said yeah. like it, it's so important to come from that angle and i didn't even really think about that angle or have any idea about that angle but it's imperative to understand yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's it's as as i've said i mean you know when i when i teach a, a seminar yeah you know I, I tell my students i say i don't know everything i want you to bring what you know to the yeah. class i said i may know more than you do about this topic but it doesn't mean I know everything about everything. Right. Um, and I want I want that, you know, as I've always talked about, you know, again, going back to Socrates, that uh, teaching is a cooperative search for truth. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it's interesting because so much of of what the, the cloud of a knowing is about is about almost unlearning what we learn, how we learn to do right. this. Right. Because. In some ways, and I mean, it sounds cliched, but you've got to let go. And, um, you know, we we struggle with that um, on, a, on a daily basis, I think, of, of letting go. Yeah. Um, you know, some of it is 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 some of it is letting go and letting your intuition take over. Right. But in this case, you know, the cloud of unknowing is asking you to let go to make space for the divine to enter that is as long as there is all of that clutter and you know 
how did he how did he refer to it in the prologue and that in walter's great uh, <laughs> translation he called them you know fault finders tittle tattlers tail you know there's a there's all this just crap going on yeah and it's just like you know you gotta let that go <laughs> because otherwise you can't make space for the divine to 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 come in and um so much of what I, th I think is interesting about this book, and it's the other thing that I found interesting as I went through my my own underlining in the text, yeah. is how focused he is on the potential, on our potential. That we're looking at the fact that everyone really has this potential. It's just a matter of whether or not, again, you ready yourself for it and you prepare yourself, because it is a process. And um, the potentiality of ourselves is something which really interests me. It's, it's, it's yeah. big in, in Jungian psychology, of mm -hmm. course, as well. Um, and the idea that we oftentimes seem to um, negate that potential and think, oh, no, 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 right? I'm not good enough for that. Um, you know, I, I run into that in, in in my job here, trying to find students who want to do research. And I really want to get those students who are first generation college. We have a large contingent of them. Um, and they're the ones who oftentimes come in thinking, oh, no, no, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so it's it's really a matter of teaching people to embrace their potential. You know, <laughs> It seems to me when we when we investigate this text that it's it's really close to a lot of Eastern hmm. ideas about Buddhism and stuff like that and letting yeah. go and Absolutely. was it a, was there a closer tie in that particular time or how do you? There's a lot of discussion that? about whether or not there the two traditions intersected in any right. kind of real right. way. Um, it seems unlikely until you get into the 15th, 16th centuries when the age of exploration and travel mm -hmm. really kicks in. Um, so, you know, by, by the time you get to the 16th century, you've got, um, you know, Jesuits, for example, mm -hmm. going to China. Um, and so there obviously is a lot of crossover there. Prior to that, it's kind of unclear whether or not there is a lot of uh, connection I mean, obviously, there are 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 thematic and 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 content connections, you know. But whether we can trace those and say, "Oh, well, the the, the author knew this text," by you know, we can't do that. We don't know. Um, I just think what it comes down to is that, you know, this journey, and that's what's so great about Underhill's book, is the mystical journey. The way that that it's presented applies regardless of what religious tradition you're looking at. It works for Christianity, it works for Judaism, works for Islam, it works for Buddhism, it works for Taoism, it works for Hinduism. It I mean, it works across the board. That idea of illumination, purgation, and union, you know, and and that's what's so nice about the way that she she writes about it is she's not talking about you know union with the Christian God, right? Uh, you know, it's union with the divine. That's why I keep referring it to it that way, because whatever your concept of the divine might be. Um, there seems like the, there there does seem to be this thread if we pull on it that getting away from the conditioning that you've been taught your whole life is in itself a wonderful experience and it allows you to see clearly in a way which is yeah. almost divine in its own way. Yes, 
but by the same token, I do believe that there's an importance to having that foundation, even if it's a foundation that you need to do, you know, major renovation on. Right. (laughs) Um, it, it, because without the foundation is, and what do you, what do you have to build on? Right. You're starting from scratch. Um, and so, you know, I don't want necessarily the student to come into my Bible as literature class and say, oh, I don't know anything about the Bible. I've never even looked at it. It's like, that's just as bad to me as the student who comes in and arrogantly says, oh, I got this. Um, you know, I, 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 that's the two ends of the spectrum. And that's not what I'm looking for, right? I want somebody who has some familiarity with this, even if it's just from a cultural sure. level. And on a cultural level, and um, you know, is able to. I mean, it, the 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 most fun I have with with teaching really any text in any course is is talking about ideas with students where you know you see all of a sudden a change in their thinking occurs. It's like, oh, I never thought about that before. It's like, yep, good. Um, let's let's think about that a little bit. Uh, what does that mean? And um, you know, that may. And I think that for a lot of people who would have approached the cloud of unknowing, mm-hmm. particularly in the 14th century when it was written, they would find this antithetical to what they've been taught, which is the way to get to the divine, the way to get to God is by studying, by praying, by being very active. And this author is saying, that's not really going to work. It's only going to get you so far, then you got to let go. And um, I don't think a lot of people are ready for that. Why do you think, what do you think it is that is different in the person that is ready for it versus the person that's not ready for it? I think it's a combination of preparation and experience. Right. I mean, as the cloud author talks about, you know, you you need to be prepared. So there are stages that you have to go through. There are things that you have to experience, Um, you know, as 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 Underhill would say, I mean, you need to go through that purgation stage. Right. Um, But there also is a big part of it that has to do with experiencing life. Yes. and, And and experiencing existence. Um, because without those experiences, I, I don't know what you what you bring to the table. I mean, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, I think we're going to look at, at, at uh, I forget, are we looking at the book? Yeah, you want to do the book of Marjorie Kemp. Right. Marjorie Kemp, incredibly interesting woman, um, an incredibly interesting book. Um, but, you know, what, a, what an odd existence she had prior to her initial experiences, as we'll talk about. I mean, you know, this is, first of all, in the 14th century, she's a woman um, writing about this, which, you know, is unusual right from the get-go. And so, you know, a a lot of the texts that we're going to look at, I think with maybe two exceptions, are are written by men. Um, And there is a a tremendous amount of difference between the, the two approaches, which has been studied widely in in the the mystical um literature in academia and difference between you know the feminine and the masculine approach to this it, it's very very different but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to those texts but i do think it's experience yeah um it's i mean obviously the cloud author has lived a life of experience 
I mean, he does not tell us what it is, but the way that he talks to us about going about this journey indicates to me that he's he's experienced stuff. He's had experiences. And, um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that something like uh, Richard Roll's The Fire of Love, which I think we're going to look at um, maybe next week, I forget, um, is it's autobiographical. And so he's telling us about his own experiences as he's going on this journey and the ways in which his life as a human being, as a man particularly, are kind of intersecting and butting up against his desire for union with the divine. Um, because the two of them don't go together. You know, it's why, it's why, you know, there are still lots of uh, Christian um, orders that, you know, live cloistered existences, um, nuns and, and, and monks. Um, there is a need to distance oneself, oneself from the, a secular existence to really engage in this kind of work. And I think that, I think that still is appropriate today. Um, I mean, we, we can do this work individually as we are, but I don't think we're going to achieve it in the same way or achieve the same sense of completion that someone does who is leading a kind of a cloistered life. Um, and that cloistered life, you know, has always intrigued me. Um, and there are people who still do it today. I mean, you know, a lot of people would say that academia is, you know, that's what became of the cloistered life in the secular world was, was working in higher education. Um, and that's why, you know, most of the older universities go, go to Cambridge and Oxford. I mean, you walk around and they look like churches. Mm -hmm. Um, it, there's, that's not an accident. Uh, those, and, and of course the, the folks who taught there in the middle ages lived there. Um, so they did, you know, live that kind of life and devoted to the life of the mind. Uh, and I, I would say that, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I mean, I have a good friend who's a, who's a Cistercian monk in Massachusetts. So I know him and, and some of the other guys at the monastery pretty well over, over several decades now. And, um, they are not living a life of the mind. I would say that they're living a life of the soul. I think there's a difference there. And it's not that they aren't engaged in the, in intellect. It's that they're, that's not their focus. Their focus is the soul. Whereas the focus for folks in my line of work in higher ed, our focus is the intellect. We're not, not necessarily negating the importance of the soul or ignoring it, but the, the mind is, is, it has dibs, right? It comes first. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and that's just an interesting, interesting dichotomy in, in our, in our world. Um, and to think about, you know, how many people in the middle ages and up until, you know, Henry VIII came along in England um, you know, engaged in that kind of life by being in monasteries and, and is just, it's really kind of amazing. Um, you know, now that number is, is dwindling globally, not just in the U S. 
um you know my my friend's monastery which is one of the the most uh you know successful in the cistercian order um the you know as he calls them the guys they're all the boys are all getting old uh, you know they're dying off and there aren't enough people coming in and so a lot of the the monasteries are closing down um one of the one of the cistercian monasteries one of the big ones in the midwest i forget where it is um i think they're going to close down because they just don't, there aren't enough guys um there aren't enough people who choose to lead that kind of life who choose to pursue the cloud of unknowing rather than whether it's the almighty dollar or you know knowledge um you know i i had to laugh before we we came on air i was somebody had posted a link to a youtube video um peewee herman mm -hmm. died the other day right um and apparently he was on the dating game in 1979. <laughs> it, it, I, and the video is on youtube it is i mean it's hilarious it's hard to believe i was watching it shaking my head thinking this couldn't have been 1979 because it seems i mean it's so incredibly sexist and misogynistic it seems like it had to have been you know 1959 but it wasn't it was 1979. um but the reason i bring it up is um why did i bring that up <laughs> um i lost my complete train of thought that we were talking about more people are choosing not the cloud of unknowing but they're choosing a different life be it yeah. The oh yeah 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 and this is what struck me one of the contestants said that his 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 big goal in his biography when they introduced him was to make money mm. that's it now it didn't say anything about what profession he wants to go you know what he's doing it, it, his goal is to make money mm. um he did not get picked um <laughs> <laughs> neither did Pee Wee herman unfortunately um but it, it, it i was just so struck by that when the the introduction of him was that you know he he wants to make money um, and that's what a lot of people focus on. And, and as we know, you know, um, you know, look at the chapter of my book on the seven deadly sins, you know, right. um, avarice is, is, is not a good thing. You know, as, as it, it, Gordon Gecko was wrong. Greed is not good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost a jump off point for our society when we decided to unbuckle ourselves from, from real meaningful events versus the illusion of meaning you know yeah yeah it's yeah it's uh and it, it, it it's something which it seems to me has occurred dramatically in 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 the u.s since since the end of world war ii um there's been such a shift in our focus on what's important um and it's it's and it's difficult you know for for people who even want to go back to focusing on what's important um it's it's a difficult thing to do given the world in which we live um it it, it it's it's hard it's hard it's interesting you know we're talking about the manuscript the cloud of the unknowing and in today's world we're all downloading our stuff to the cloud to an alien group they'd be like look at this cloud of unknowing <laughs> yeah 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 well it's not that similar right i mean he he says in the text it's not a real cloud in the sky right and right. you know when you talk to people about the cloud you know they say you talk to somebody who's older about the cloud you know my information lives in the cloud right. they're like well where's that it's like well it's not a real cloud um yeah. and so you know 
there is an interesting aspect to that because he does talk in the text about the role of imagination in all this. And in some ways, there, the imagination can get in the way of all of this because you you use it and it and it serves as a as a as a barrier. Um, you know, at one point in in some of the middle chapters, I remember he he goes through the different faculties and talks about why they're all um, you know the significance of all. It's starting in chapter sixty three, where he talks about the mind. 64, he talks about reason. 65, he talks about imagination. He says, imagination is the faculty by which we can picture anything, past as well as present. Both it and the means by which it works are contained in the mind. I mean, this is amazing stuff for the 14th century. Before man sinned, he says, imagination was so obedient to its master, reason, that it never pictured anything that was perverted or fantastic, physically or spiritually but not so now for it is not restrained by the light of grace in the reason it will for if it is not restrained by the light of grace in the reason it will never cease waking or sleeping to suggest diverse and perverted ideas about the world around us or some hallucination which after all is only a spiritual idea conceived in material terms Mm. or a material one conceived in spiritual and this is always counterfeit and false and akin to error that is whoo yeah, and it it, it 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 it's interesting because it picks right up on something which occurs. Um, you know, I, I've always been intrigued by this idea of faculty psychology that your mind has these, these separate faculties, and um, in John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is retelling the story of the fall, um, it's really in some ways Eve's imagination that gets the best of her. And it's constantly, God is constantly telling Adam and stressing the importance of reason. Um, reason is chief. Reason, he says, I gave you as an umpire at one point, he says. So if you're, 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 you're battling about a choice, go to reason. And the problem for Eve in what happens to her in that particular text and the way that she's tempted by the serpent, by Satan, is that it's her imagination that gets the best of her. She lets her reason, her reason fails. Um, her reason, she's been told, don't eat the fruit. You're going to die. The serpent comes along and says, oh, you're not going to die. I ate the fruit and look at me. I can talk and I can I can walk upright. And of course, the problem is she never saw him do that. She's relying on what he said. And then he puts all of these ideas into her head about how she'll be you know, she'll be able to fly like an angel and it, it, the imagination gets the best of her. And so she, she takes a bite. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because imagination is so important, but very clearly, you know, in, in faculty psychology, it has a funny kind of a, of a spot because, um, you know, and, and Shakespeare does this in Hamlet, he even talks about it in Hamlet, right? When, if you remember Hamlet and Ophelia is, has gone crazy and she's out there talking all kinds of crazy things in the street and it gets reported back to the king that she's doing that and the line is something to the effect of the 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 rabble the people hear what she's saying and it doesn't make any sense it's just gibberish but they take it and they use their imagination and they put it into an order that makes sense to them and so they're perverting what it is that she's saying Hmm. Uh, you know it's a it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting problem. 
a, a tale of sound and fury, completely yes. devoid of me. Doctor David Sullivan, we could probably go for another hour, yeah. but you got you got a hard line coming up, and I yeah. want to make sure that you you make that. This Thank is, you. How fast did this go? Are you kidding me? Like yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, right. <laughs> it's so much fun, and I I I really love the direction in which we were able to navigate, and I. I, I'm going to go back and have to re-listen to it because there's a lot of parts I want to highlight it and, and re oh, I'm rethink glad, on. I'm glad. Yeah, Ho and I think there's a lot people of people find too. it interesting. It's a it's a pr pretty esoteric topic. It is, but I think that there's a thirst for it, especially now more than ever. And I really think we are reaching an audience of people that want to learn. And we may be the only resource they have right now. We <laughs> may be the esoteric gateway into a world of faculty imagination you know what i mean so yeah, yes. I'm, I'm thankful for that so I, I yeah i wonder how many podcasts are out there talking about <laughs> topics like this so we we are, we are unique are we not we are of course um, and of next course. week we'll do we'll do marjorie kemp okay the book okay. of marjorie kemp for next week we'll talk yes about. let's do that That's a good one. and um on the topic of books you have a tremendous one that you and i went through here uh, yeah. The seven deadly sins. And for anybody who found this particular conversation to be enlightening or beautiful or fun, I highly recommend you check out uh, Dr. Solomon's book, The Seven Deadly Sins. It, it's incredible read. You'll come out being a better person and have a better understanding of it. And you got another book coming up. Maybe you could just, I know you're short on time, but maybe you could talk a little bit about where people can find you, what you have coming sure. up and what you're excited about. Yeah. So uh, my website is David A. Solomon. S-A-L-O-M-O-N uh, dot com. And you can find uh, my my books, my speaking stuff, my uh, just about everything um, up there, including my consulting. Um, what I'm excited about, I continue to be excited about teaching in the fall. Um, so the fall semester is coming quick upon us. Our first day of class here is uh, three short weeks away. So um, we are uh, preparing and uh, everything that goes along with that. So I really, uh, I love doing that and, and getting ready for a new class and a new course. And, and, uh, and I've also got a whole new group of students coming into the university so I can talk to them about doing research and creative work. So I'm excited about that as well. You know, I'm, I'm excited. And, and didn't you win an award recently? Didn't you get a, 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 yes. a didn't you, can you share that with people? I think that's amazing. Our new president who uh, has just come on board um, as a, a, a former rear admiral with the Coast Guard, he just uh, mm -hmm. just resigned his commission and, and retired, and he is our incoming president of the university. And um, I had him at an event last week, which was the conclusion of my summer scholars program, where students are doing collaborative research with faculty over the summer. And he came to the event, which was lovely, with his wife, and uh, said a few words, which was very nice. And then he called me onto the stage and, and uh, he presented me with a challenge coin. Um, he explained what it was. And for folks who aren't familiar with the tradition in the military, um, Google it. That's what Uncle Google there for. Um, but I was incredibly uh, flattered. Um, and I, he said I, I was the first faculty member that he had given one to. So um, it was uh, it's sitting here on my desk and uh, I'm, I'm really, really uh humbled by it speaking of humility well congratulations i Thank you. i'm 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 excited for you and uh i'm excited for the to see everything you got coming up and talk to you in the future now i'm holding you almost past your time <laughs> no thank problem. you so much for today and i will talk to you soon well next week uh marjorie kemp 
Ladies Thanks. and gentlemen, aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.